Hello and welcome to episode 109 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, do you remember Boku? The adult juice beverage from the 90s? Yeah, the adult juice beverage from the 90s. I mean, when you when you go to a party, you don't want to have a soda, you don't want to have a beer. Yeah, I'm not... Belching's for babies. I don't want to belch at parties. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up today. Is this some Richard Lewis? Back, yeah. How do you remember that? Best comedian in the nineties. I would have never remembered Richard Lewis even existed. Oh wow, he's so good on Curb Your Enthusiasm, though. Come on, I've never seen that show in my life. What? I know. Well, Shane doesn't like fun stuff, I guess. I like, I like, I just have never, I've never watched it. Do you like Seinfeld? Oh yeah. Boop 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 boop. You should try Curb, dude. Shane, oh, I know. Curb is says. so your level of anger. Good. <laughs> it's like. I'm a little worried you might just binge watch the whole thing if you get I've into it. I've heard it's like somewhat cringy, and I have a hard time with cringe sometimes. Well, you know how one of your biggest complaints in film and television is when characters behave beyond what their reasonable intentions might be? Yeah, like they do things that even if even if the thing that they're doing does not make sense, it fits the character. Like, yeah, if it doesn't fit the character, it doesn't fit like what would happen. I don't like that. Like, that's why I didn't like uh, Hannibal. The TV show Hannibal, I thought it was, the things they did were just insane. Well, Curb is about people being mad at everyone in their life doing insane things. Good, I like it. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harbarger. I'm doing the Larry David truth stare right now. Are you lying to me? Are you lying to me? On this week's episode, we kick off with a breakdown of the modern super qualifiers and a metagame analysis just before things potentially shake up with the upcoming release of Call Time. Then we're diving into Gruel Aggro in Historic and collecting pelts off our fallen friends. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Joel P., Brian G., Flo B., and Connor K. Is that like Flo Brida? You know we prefer not to use people's last names. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, new patrons. We appreciate you very much. Stan, tell us about the patron. The Patreon, rather. Yeah, so Patreon is this online platform. You can find it over at patreon.com slash the dive down, and it lets you, our listener and fan, support us directly. Puts money into the show. We use Patreon funds basically to pay for the stuff that we send out for Patreon perks. It keeps the lights on. It's how we hire our editor. Um, sometimes we use it to get new gear so that our show actually sounds as good as possible. And if you'd like to support the show, like I said, check us out, patreon.com slash the dive down, lots of different tiers for as little as a dollar an episode. You can get into our super secret Slack channel and hang out with us and our friends during the day when we really should be working, but we're distracted because we're all yelling about cards or television. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's the best. I love the, the Patreon Slack is the best. Every time someone new comes in, it's just like, uh, it's an injection of awesome new energy and I love it. Uh, it's just like cheers when everyone yells norm. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you 80s kids out yeah, there i've been watching i've been watching cheers again speaking of tv it's still good you mean the prequel to Frasier? another way you can uh support the show uh manatraders.com awesome online card renting that's their slogan i just made up i think it could be official if they if they wanted to use it full just, yeah just you have full rights to it mt um yeah we've been using them for before they were even a sponsor uh if you use sign up code the dive down all one word, 15% off 
your first three months. Go for it. Um, I feel like the code might have not been working for like a week or two because all of a sudden, like a, a bunch of people, like someone messaged us, hey, the code's not working. So if you tried to use it before, uh, head back over there. Uh, let us know if it's not, but I've seen people sign up with it, so I think it's good. Do you, do you think that three weeks ago, if someone tried to sign up and it didn't work, they said, I'm not going to pay for mana traders yep. until I can support the dive yep. down? Exactly. I would have done it. I've been like, I want to find out when this code's coming back. Wow. I mean, I think people like us. All right. We have decent reviews on iTunes. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> delaying playing Magic for three weeks because they couldn't kick us the 2% we get Dave. or whatever. 2.3 stars out of five is definitely above average. Definitely above all right. <laughs> hey, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, we'd love it. We have more stars than that. We appreciate everyone who's ever left a review. Uh, they're amazing. Uh, the last way that you can support us here at the Dive Down is if you play Magic Arena, play some Historic maybe, our new little uh, format that we've been exploring. We're going to do a Dive Down on Historic this week. And uh, you can check out Untapped, the uh, analytics app that you can use to log your stats. And you can get us a little affiliate bonus if you download it from untapped.thedivedown.com. It's called a redirect, friends. It goes to their website, and you can download from our affiliate link there. Well, the, they didn't make us like our own little like subdomain? No, I made us a subdomain on thedivedown.com, which is a URL that I own, and I will eventually make you two pay a lot of money for. Oh, no. Now, Dave, is that redirect a 301? I, I don't know what it is for sure. I just, I went in the, uh, went in the old registrar and, and added it. It's a 401. It puts bytes on the run. 401, 402, whatever it takes. Okay. Here's what it takes. Dave, don't go anywhere because this week you are at the news desk and you're going to educate us on what the waning gasps of the modern format look like before it gets a cold injection of snow. Wow. Wow. What a setup. Uh, yeah. So since we were doing a historic dive down this week, we thought it might be a nice idea to do a little bit of a look at modern, like Stan said, because I think that we're kind of, there's a lot of discussion around modern lately. And I feel like for the paucity of premier level events that are going on, people have things to say. They're the same discussions that we've been having on and off for the last couple of months, but I, th I think things are changing. Attitudes are changing. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to talk a little bit about a single modern event. And then we're going to talk about an incredible meta analysis that a Redditor contributed to the uh, modern magic subreddit and talk a little bit about some of the conclusions that they discovered from looking at a couple months of modern. So first thing we're going to take a look at is the modern super qualifier from January 23rd. You know, this is a usual premier level Magic Online event. All the grinders were there. Uh, we're going to start with the top eight, but there are all kinds of notable players in this event. Of course, it was a super qualifier. You know, Laplazjan and Bausatina were in the top eights. Bolovo, Hugo Fridas, QB Turtle, Clyde the Glide Drexler, and a number of others also were in the top 32. I did a league last week and I played against Baututina. How'd that go? And I lost. Yeah. Weird. I have also lost to them a few times. Um, yeah, so they actually made a top eight on this one. So I'm, I'm just going to go through the decks that we got in the top eight. The deck that won, Kogamo with four colored Uro. Mm -hmm. In second place, the Dock 96 with Red Black Shadow. JVI Dart in third with Burn. Yuyan in fourth place with four color Uro. Tara Seek in fifth place with Is It Blitz? Laplazjan in sixth place with Hammer Time, Baututina in seventh place with four color Uro, and Rostov in eighth place with Is It Blitz? Mm -hmm. So that top eight, 
three four color uro two is it blitz one shadow one hammer one burn pretty interesting it's fast it is fast it's nothing in between it's fast or slow um the decks that went 9-0 in the swiss because of course the the ranking i just read you out were how people did in the top eight the decks that went 9-0 in the swiss are the two is it blitz decks two of the uro decks and hammer time all went 9-0 in the Swiss, which I also thought was pretty interesting that there were five different players that went 9-0 in this tournament, which means it was a pretty large field, I think, actually, in order for those people to not run into each other as they get higher and higher in the ladder. So so that's cool to see that there were a lot of people participating in this. Unfortunately, none of these lists were too spicy, really. Um, there were a couple tiny little tech pieces. One is that the, the one exception that was really interesting is that Basutina was running a single primetime in their four-color Uro deck, which... I'm not quite sure exactly what's going on there. I imagine it's a way to, you know, it's a big threat, of course, and it ramps you into field. You know, you can grab field of the dead and, and do some of that kind of stuff if you want. You can get a mystic sanctuary if you want. Um, but it was the first time I had seen one of those in one of these Uro lists, which I thought was pretty interesting to just put good land cards in a deck that also likes good lands, even though it's not a primeval Titan deck. Mm-hmm. Well, everything is going to be a primeval Titan deck eventually. That's what I always say. I mean, the way things are going right now is just going to be Titan, the format of Titans, and that's it. Um, Red Black Shadow was running a two of Knight's Whisper in the main, which I thought was pretty cool. I haven't seen it in main before, but Stan, you've seen it around some? Yeah, it's been, it's been lingering. It's, it's a cool card. I feel like it's actually been stock for weeks now. Hmm. Hey, way to pay attention, Dave. Come on. I haven't run into this deck very much lately, to be honest. So, And I, I definitely haven't piloted much since you know I'm is it for life at this point. Does that, fit, does that fit on your, your knuckle tats? Is it, it does. Is it for L-Y-F-E? Yep. Exactly. You got to use your thumb. You got to use the thumbs. It's a little weird, but you know. Uh, and the last thing that I thought was interesting was that the burn player, JVI Dart, was running Bobble and Luris as a package, which is what they, you used to do in burn before uh, the companions were ratted. And I hadn't seen it post that, but now it's back. Nice to give some card engine draw in case you go late and uh, seems worth, uh, worth it. So... Not really a lot of surprises, but I think these are all decks that are powerful, things that we would expect to see in a modern top eight right now, right? Oh, yeah. Burn? This is the best performance by Burn in months. And we've been seeing Burn pop up in modern challenges. And I think there was a while where people thought Burn was underpowered because of how prevalent Uro was. Um, and I I think what we're seeing now is the format get faster in response to Uro, perhaps. And Burn just appears to be one of those decks that can either get under Uro sometimes or punish the other decks that are. Yeah. Yeah, and it also has a whole lot of tools against is it to be able to try to kill the the creatures. So interesting, which you, you don't want to do in burn, but I guess if you had to, you could. Um, so top eight, I think was kind of expected. Top 32. Let's talk about this really quickly. The top two decks and the top 32 at five copies each were four color Uro and is it blitz with a number number one and number two decks. Shadow of various styles was uh, the third deck in fourth place, there was a four-color shadow deck and several red-black shadow decks, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think there was also a Jund shadow deck, so I think I'm wrong about the Jund now, thinking about it. I, I, lamped, I lumped in together, though, but there definitely was a standout where there was an old-style Traverse the Ulenwald Stubborn Denial Tarmogoyf shadow deck, which I thought was interesting to see come back. Hmm. Not a lot of Grixis, though. I didn't see Grixis this time. Let me double-check my list really quickly. I have I a list right. of all of them. Yeah, no, not in this one. Um, the next couple of decks were Burn and Storm at three copies apiece. Wow. 
which was pretty cool. Some so classics. Yeah. So your fourth and fifth, fifth most frequent decks in this tournament were old, but good. You know, ever last week mentioned that he thought storm was in a really good position right now in modern. And there were, I mean, the pilots who took modern, who took burn into this tournament were really, really good headlined by Hugo Friedis. But there were a couple other well-known pilots who I think that they work with or work together to tweak their lists out and um, it worked this time. Three of them made the top 32. Uh, the next tier down is with two copies apiece is Amulet Titan, Hammer Time, Mill, and Saltai Wreck. So another Uro deck. Hammer Time sneaking in there with two. Mill sneaking in there with two. And then the last tier, your one-offs is Dredge, Miracles, Oops, All, All Char Belcher, and Blue White Spirits. Was that like Dr. That Queller? Mi- it was not Dr. Queller. I do like that Mill is just like a non-ironic choice at this point. Just yeah. like, hey, I'm playing Mill. It's a fine deck. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, and I think that we'll talk a little bit about Mill in the in the next section as well. But you know, this is a tournament where the one of category combined is smaller than the largest two slices, which I think we usually think is kind of a bummer when we see tournament results like that when there's less less one offs than there are the top meta decks. Now it's different when you're looking at the top thirty two. I was surprised to see so many people on. Is it still? Maybe it. I think it's. Guess it's just the fastest deck is what people have decided, and so putting pressure on four color Uro can work that way. But man, coming back from a resolved Omnath when you are is it can be super hard because of all the life gain. What happened to Green White Titan? Just gone this weekend. You know there were a couple of Amulet Titan decks, but no Green White anywhere to be seen. And then you know I think overall my main takeaway from this list is like feels like with the exception of Burn and Storm shooting up the list for a little bit it. This just kind of feels like what modern is right now. It's missing Heliod. It is missing Heliod. You're right. Yeah, completely missing Heliod as well, which is kind of an interesting question too. Because certainly people are not afraid to play that deck online. Mm -hmm. So maybe before we talk about how we feel about the fact that seven of the top 32 decks had Uro in them, why don't we talk about this really cool post that was shared around this week from Reddit. Uh, User Alatheo on Reddit uh, and I believe that their real name is Anil Yahi on Twitter, uh, did a analysis of the last month or so on Magic Online. I think you should check them out. We'll post the link in our show notes for sure, but it sounds like this is their first of a number of meta reviews that they want to do. And so, you know, I think get some eyeballs on it so you can try to encourage them. Yeah, this is a this is high effort data collection and posting for sure. Yeah, the dump was amazing. I mean, it it was nine different events that went from December 26th to January 18th. It was a challenge. It was a showcase challenge and a super qualifier. Um, there were a lot of high level takeaways that we'll talk about, but there's even more data in their actual Reddit post. That, so I think you should definitely go check it out. Uh, there was confidence intervals. The author shared all of their methodology. There's all kinds of good stuff. But at any rate, this full sample includes 288 decks. So each individual deck is about 0.3% of a meta. So let's take a look at the prevalence of the decks within this sample. Everybody look at the chart. I'm looking at it. Look at the charts. Now, I, what's, that, what's that big slice? Is that the other slice? So or is, that the, is that tier one? It is the other. So the, the thing that was the most interesting about this sample of 288 decks is the other slice is far and away the most prevalent sample within, within these events. It is 24% of the meta or 70 decks out of the 288, essentially. So the way that Anil did this is it fits less than 2.4% 
in the meta, it goes into the other bucket. So that means that if it was less than seven entries, goes in the other bucket, which is actually like kind of a big amount. But decks above seven turned out to be around 20 different decks anyway. Sure. Mm-hmm. The largest decks slash tier one by prevalence would be Hammer Time with 9%. Red Black Shadow with 8.3%, Omnath with 7.6%, Heliod Combo with 6.8%, and Is It Prowess with 5.8%. And those are all of the decks that have more than 5% of the meta share with this. Man, Hammer Time 9%. Hammer Time number one deck in this sample uh, by prevalence. Wild. Yeah, really kind of surprising. And so, I mean, let's talk about in terms of you said it's like nine major events, and that goes back till late, very late December, mm-hmm. like post, post Christmas, post holiday time until now basically exactly okay yeah so it's really a a recent snapshot of the meta um these decks together were between 37 and 38 percent of the combined sample so about 105 of the decks together with other this represents 60 percent of the whole so the random decks plus the tier one is 60 percent of what's going on which doesn't feel too bad realistically you know if we had a what's essentially a quarter other you know a third tier one and then the rest of it is kind of these lower frequency decks that doesn't seem too bad on its face yeah i mean it looks like a, it looks like a front format that you can at least place with a whole lot of different decks uh which would be potentially surprising if you're used to saying like well the only there's only like five great decks in modern and the rest are not that good but you know seeing just this number of different dots that uh this user used to make their pie chart is definitely like oh this is appealing yeah. Lower tier decks included things like Salt Eye Control, Green White Titan, Burn, Adnaz, Spirits, Obosh Aggro, Taxes, Infect, Mill, and Dredge. So, and, this, and the, the tier meaning frequency tier, right? This is still frequency and not performance? This is frequency tier two is what I would call the, the list sure, that I just sure, gave. Sure. Yeah. And there's a few other decks in that too. It basically was like 14 decks that fall into frequency tier two. So I didn't want it to um, go for that quite as much. It's worth noting that these numbers are by the entry version of the table of the table. So they did two analysis of the data based off this. And one was just raw number of entries of a given deck. Another one was by um, what pilots were playing it. And so they actually kind of like pulled people out, I think, based if they were was the same pilot playing the same deck over and over again. I think they consolidated that down to one person instead, from what I understand. But go check out their post and have a look because they it was a slightly different take on it, but it did not change what tier one was, but it did change the numbers a little bit. So if you want to see that, go check out the Reddit post. So the next thing that they did was calculate win rates. And what they did to do that was take the total number of matches per deck played per deck and then also take the number of points uh gathered by deck which is kind of like what we did a couple of weeks ago when we when Mm -hmm. we went through i forget which tournament that was exactly but we tried to give like that win expected win rate mana traders yeah the mana traders that's right exactly they actually took it and tried to go one level further by uh normalizing the data a little bit and also including things like confidence intervals and stuff like that again check out their post to see it but since they had the number of rounds uh, and number of points each deck had, and they controlled it with the number of rounds per deck, they put together a set of win rates. So in this sample, here's the list of the top decks according to the win rates that we got. Spirits was the number one <laughs> deck by by win rate here. Even though it was one of the smallest in the sample, it had one of the highest number of wins. Dredge was very high still. Omnath, Hammer Time, and Adnaz are the ones with the highest win rates. 
And then the tier below that turns out to be Rakdos Shadow, Izzet, and Heliod. Even though they're very high in the frequency, they were lower, less successful as far as expected wins go. What about Obosh and Mill? So Obosh and Mill were kind of all in the second tier from from my looking at the charts. So I didn't bring them up here, but they were a little bit behind all the all the other decks, or maybe down closer to where Rakdos Shadow and Is it uh, Is it Birds were. This chart is is challenging to read because it has like. I guess what what is called the confidence interval, where like the data spans a big section of the vertical axis. Right. Yeah. And so I was really just looking at the highlighted points and also just looking at the order that they were shared in more than anything else to kind of go with there. But when you look at this, you end up with a top five that's basically Hammer Time, Uro, Red Black Shadow, Heliod, and Is It Blitz, which is kind of what we saw by prevalence, but it turns out that those decks are still kind of there as far as win rates go. And they put together a, you know, the takeaway from the win rate discussion was basically Heliod and Blitz are the bad ones from the tier. They're, they're underperforming the tier. Hammer Time, Uro, and Rakdos Shadow are the ones that are performing at above or at that tier. So high, like higher frequency, lower performance. For Heliod and Blitz, basically, yes. yeah. Got it. Yeah, which is interesting. Okay, so so look, this is all kind of an entry into what do we think about what the modern metagame looks like now? Are we surprised by this list? Are we not? I'm kind of not surprised by this list, but it's one of the first times I feel like I've seen it written out with these five decks being at the top right now. One of the things I liked about this post when I read their their Google document, they sort of have like a, they made a win rate tier list as well, though sort of like strictly win rate and not really informed by popularity. And there's like 10 decks in a tier 1.5 and nothing in tier one because it's like nothing is over and above win rate wise. And it's pretty nice to see like, hey, you could play a lot of different decks and a lot of these decks even play differently from one another. Like we have we have a tribal creature deck in spirits. We have a graveyard combo deck in dredge. We have Omnath control. We have aggressive hammer time. We have mill you have like the oops all charbelchers. You have a Heliod creature combo. Like that's a lot of different ways to play modern and have a you know let's say fifty five percent ish win rate, and that's pretty nice. But let's talk about the feels of right now. <laughs> yeah, that's more important. I mean, the feels are important too, when, especially when it comes to you know you know Joe Cheney, our our friend in the Slack, posted a tweet from Julian Nab the other night that was basically like Uro is the most played creature in legacy pioneer historic and modern it's the most played creature in every format that it's that it's legal in right now except for commander i guess that seems bad doesn't seem great and while it seems like the win rate is not farther out than it should be like it doesn't seem like it's dominating i know that there's people who are really getting annoyed by the repetitive kind of experience of running into Uro decks over and over again. And Stan, I would toss it out to you. So you, I know you were playing a little bit when the all access pass was, was going on. Yeah. And what was that like? It was bad, David. It was, it, it almost became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and it was turtle power who got it on my radar first that they were facing all these foiled out Uro decks. And that's when I realized I kept seeing these foiled out full art on islands and it's, it was too frequent to just be a coincidence. And I just got this impression that once you had this all-access pass, suddenly a bunch of players were incentivized to get the most expensive deck that, in some cases, 
is even outside the rental limit of mana traders. So with that access, that all access, they got the most expensive deck. And I was playing a league where I played it three times in a row. It was horrible. Batutina was one of them though. So that was less horrible. That was me taking my medicine. But doesn't doesn't feel great when the one thing that seems to be potentially keeping Uro Bay online, <clears throat> in some cases at least, is the cost barrier. Yeah. I mean, I think that we know by win rates, though, too, like, you know, Uro's not even that great in formats like Historic or probably even a format like Pioneer, though that's really hard to tell. I think that... Um, Still good, though. Yeah, I mean, it's like fine, right? I mean, like, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I'm not going to... I think it doesn't make sense to get into like the the reels of historic, but I think the the feels of seeing that kind of card and seeing that play pattern of Uro sort of happen over and over and over again is a little bit tedious, right? And doesn't really seem like it should be something that Magic wants to base their game around. Like why 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 would you want this card to be the most played card in like four of your formats? It seems not great. And you had to ban it out of standard, right? So yeah, I think a lot of us in the Slack today were we're crossing our fingers that we might get a surprise ban announcement. And for all we know, it might still happen this week before the episode comes out. Because this card is it's so prevalent and it's so oppressive. And I think it becomes format defining in a way that doesn't necessarily contribute to fun. But again, I did feel a little differently a few months ago. So maybe now I'm just kind of tired of this thing and just desperate for a change. Yeah, I mean this this episode basically marks the one year birthday of Uro, right? So we've been we've been living in Uro's world for a year now. Yeah. It's kind of come and gone. Like sometimes Uro's been the best thing to do. And then when the companions came out, Uro was not really the best thing to do anymore. But then it came back strong. Um it's weird. I know we keep having the same conversation, but it's felt to me in the last week on Twitter and just with our you know, our friends that we talk with Magic about that like everybody is kind of like over it finally. We are over it. Does Uro remind you of anything? And I don't have an answer to my own question. It's just, I'm not sure the last time I really felt this way, where it was this card that is pretty, I mean, it's kind of fair, right? It's not doing anything particularly broken. It's just so good and efficient and provides so much value anywhere you cast it that it feels just annoying. Yeah, I think it's not the fact that Uro itself is the card that turns the game around. It's just the card that does so much for you at such an efficient price and also is recursive that it just it's so easy to use and so easy to build a shell that supports it. Then you're just like, well, I'm going to play this card. It's going to do exactly what I want it to do. And it's not like a five meta planeswalker. It's not something that, you know, is uh, easy to disrupt. It's not something to be killed with a removal spell that easily as be exiled. You know, it's just all the kind of things that all the, all the parts of it work towards the whole of being super good. And so it's, that's, it's the type of card that magic was inevitably moving towards, which is like, here's a pile of text. Yeah. And at some point, this pile of text is going to result in something that is just too good to not be putting into almost every deck that can support it. Yeah, and I also feel like all of the dials on it are just, like, slightly wrong. Like, what if it was eight cards instead of five cards to escape it? Like, that would help a little bit. What if it gained two life? Yeah, instead of three life. What if it only gained one life? Even if it gained one life, it would still be not that bad. What if it drew a card but didn't put a land onto the battlefield? Right, why does it do all three of those things? And then the last one for me is like, why doesn't it die to fry? Like, could you... 
not not that this would make it all better but if there was like a more reasonable sideboard option that like red decks could bring in against it occasionally or you know some other you know it it feels like even the toughness is like one more than you want it to be as well it's it's brutal yeah that was one of my frequent complaints against oko like oko should just die to fry and the fact that it was outside of Fry range made Fry feel like a bad card when it really shouldn't be. I mean, Fry is a bad card right now, but that's just because of all the cards that are in the meta right now, yeah. like most notably Uro. So I don't know. I mean, I kind of join you all now where I'm like, it would have been nice to get a ban announcement. I don't think it's at the point where it like makes me not want to play Modern. Uh, I've certainly been not super in the queues the last couple of weeks while I've been mostly working on you know, the spoiler episodes and doing card research in that way instead of playing a lot. But, um, man. Yeah, I've, I've banged this drum a few times in the past, and it's it's with the card design as it is uh, in Magic and the fact that it's a print game, Uro is the kind of card that would have been tweaked six months ago. But we cannot tweak cards in paper, and so Uro it has to go at some point, right? Because we can't, we can't, we can't outclass it in power, I don't think. I think that would be bad for the game. And I think Watsi probably realized that with the with the power level we're seeing in Caldime, which seems more moderate, right? And so it's it feels bad to be like, ban this card. You know, no one likes that word very much, but that's the reality in which we live in is cards have to be banned because they can't be nerfed. Dead of winter. Here we are. <laughs> Well, thanks for this uplifting conversation, Dave. Yeah. But I mean, I think I think the good points to look at here is that, you know, it still is a format in which you can play what you like and succeed in a lot of ways, yeah. especially if you are good at metagaming and tuning your sideboard and tuning your lists. Hey, I got back to back four ones with, with Ponza. So my man. Yeah. Ponza didn't even show up anywhere in any of these lists. And I'm not going to say that that means you shouldn't play it like it's it's a good deck. You know what I mean? Like, so there's, there's, I do, there's still so many options here, but running into the same thing over and over again does get so boring. It's just, why does the deck have to be foiled out? Like, we get it. You have all the cards. We all have all the cards now, man. Why did you foil it? All right. We should take a quick break before we get more sad, pep ourselves up, maybe get a glass of water. And then when we return, we are diving into the coolest deck of all. The gruelest deck of all, Red Green Stompian Historic. Stay with us. All right, we're back. I guess I think Stan and Dave just left. They're going to let me run the second half of the episode all by myself because it's just this is me coming home this is me coming home to where i want to be in magic uh it's it was my first standard deck when i when i started playing magic for real and now it's my favorite historic deck by a long shot it is gruel aggro and today <laughs> we are <laughs> today uh, we're going to talk about it. We're going to go. We're a nice deep dive, a dive down, if you will, into how this deck works, how to play it, how to think about building it, and so on. Look, this is Shane's deck. This is his deck. Now, it's also a good deck, which is helpful. Is it more Shane's deck than when he did the Dredge episode, brought that home, or when we did Tron and we brought that home? I think yes. I think this is the Shane's deck, and I'm glad he's come back to it. Gruel is to Shane the way is it is to Stan and Dave. <laughs> it's helpful. At least we have 
some novel or semi-novel color identities um, or guild identities. So let, let's talk about this guild. Let's talk about the Gruul clans, one of the 10 guilds of Ravnica. One of their mottos, the strong survive the strongest rule, should give you an idea of what Gruul is all about, aggression and power. So Gruul combines the aggression of red with kind of the powerful bodies of green to create a combination that frequently gives you the best aspects of both you know, you play red cards, you play green cards, you play the red, green, gold cards. They get the, These decks get access to aggressive starts and resilient mid and end games. You know, your, your mono red deck, you might top deck like another hasty 2-2 or a 1-1 one, one that, you know, pings your opponent or something like that. Gruel decks get access to cards like Hexproof 4-4s four with Trample that costs three mana. You know, your, your mono green deck is going to be filling the board with, with some big beefers, but they're not going to be able to clear a creature with a burn spell or dome the opponent with like that Ramanap ruins. So for people who like just getting damage through, I think Gruul can be the way to go, depending on the card pool of the format that you're playing at the time. And no, it also helps out when there's two extremely powerful cards that draw you into playing red and green. And I'll let you ponder what those are for a minute. You know, Shane is going to talk about them. It's Llanowar Elves and uh and a braid uh another good thing about gruel decks is they can be pretty straightforward to navigate and i think fun to play like there's just something satisfying about you know ramping into a big board of well-statted creatures you put your opponent on the back foot and you frequently win the game um and gruel's been this potent color combination in many points in magic's history and i think it is again right now it's one of the top decks in standard if you play that format it's been a clear tier one contender in uh, historic as well. Did I say it's one of the top decks of standard or historic? You said standard and then said historic as well. Good. Well, then we just leave that in. Uh, and I've been playing it to great success in historic since we picked it up a few months ago. And then a few weekends ago, as we talked about on the pod, it was a substantial part of the metagame at the MPL and Rivals events. It's really become the de facto aggressive deck of choice. And if you like aggressive creatures, this is probably the deck for you. And so as we usually do, what we'll look at today is how Gruul is designed to work in historic, like the, the core and flex spots of the deck, sideboard options, and then playing with and against the deck. Any questions, guys? You ready for this? How many copies of Domri are you playing right now? <laughs> I wish I wish I was. I think it's I mean I think it's a fine card. But <laughs> historic's good enough that it's I think there's better cards. Do you have a poster of Domri above your bed? Hmm. Next to the Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> and like 1994 Michael Jordan. You, you know that a Corvette is not a gruel car. You're probably right. That's like, that's definitely a mono red. Gruel's like a charger or something. I was thinking like a Ford F 5,000 or whatever the biggest truck is. What's the biggest truck number that there is that starts at the four with an F? Um, the other thing that we should say is, yeah, this is this is uh, Shane's deck. Stan played it some too. Uh-huh. And I got to co-ride along with Shane while he was laddering yeah, that was last fun. week. So, uh, I mean, you've played decks like this. You sure. Know how this works. Yeah. Okay. So, so first, let's talk about how Gruel is working in historic right now. Like it's 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 it looks like a lot of successful Gruel decks of the past, but this one I think is more creature centric than ever because there's almost never any main deck like damage spells or fireball effects in these build uh, because it's just focusing on pressuring the opponent with attack after attack from creatures. And you know, so what it's doing is against other creature decks, you typically outclass what they're doing. 
And then with Ember, access to Embercleave, and we'll talk about that card later, of course, you have access to one of the most important trump cards in any kind of creature matchup. And against mid-range removal heavy decks, you kind of just grind out their removal with all of your threats. And then against control decks, you can undermine their ability to stabilize by going under them or just refilling the board with more creatures from your hand. And so the card pool of Historic gives us lots of great options at every part of the curve. And there's so many that you often have to pick and choose what you think's the best in a given metagame or like tournament environment that you're expecting. So when we talk about how the deck's built, we'll highlight the core cards of the deck, which are kind of the ones you're gonna see in probably every gruel build right now. And then kind of some optional selections that seem to come in and out of the deck as the metagame changes or as people sort of continue to refine the deck. And uh, yeah, some of the ones we'll talk about more in depth, some of the cards you know what they do, so there's no real reason to kind of read them. Like the first one, Llanowar Elves. Like, so we'll just go in, in CMC order, I think, and start with Llanowar Elves. One of the classics, it's your 1-1 Elf that can be tapped to add green. Great way to get ahead on the play. Maybe catch up on the draw if the matchup makes sense to leave in your Llanowar Elves. The deck has a lot to do with the mana, and so making more of it is always good. And it's not, of course, it's not like your best beatdown card, but it does let you get ahead on curve, which can lead to more damage over time. And you want one drops in this deck because swinging with a creature means a cheaper Ember Cleave, as we'll talk about soon. Although with Llanowar Elves, it doesn't matter that much because it also makes mana. It's either way. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you win both ways. Llanowar Elves. How do you feel about Llanowar Elves, Dan? One of my favorite elves. Do you think this deck would run eight? mana dork elves if it had access to both of them i don't think so i think it's not it's not quite like a ramp deck like i think something like mono green devotion is i do th i think four works but i could be wrong maybe you want more maybe you want maybe you want like six but like you know this deck isn't playing gilded goose right i don't know if it would if it could or if like if it made sense to but it still would have access to that and that is a creature that can swing in the air and wear an ember cleave so to swing for one <laughs> Yeah, guess, double strikes and that's two. two. Yeah. That's two. I mean, I think the thing about Llanowar Elves, to just keep in mind, or any of the one-drop elves, because obviously Elvish Mystic is the same exact card, mm -hmm. um, any format that has access to this card has always has the possibility of a different style of deck being open to it than formats that don't. And the only formats that don't get access to this card at this point are standard, sometimes. Sometimes there's a one-drop elf in standard, sometimes there isn't. And I do think it changes the complexion of that format depending on when you have it available or not. Because being able to use your first turn to ramp into something even bigger for turn three is a classic magic play, and entire deck archetypes have long been built around it. And this is one that sort of does it in a slightly different way. You know, like this is one that instead of putting out something disruptive or something huge, uses it to empty your hand, and, and that's cool. Yeah. Next one drops, Pell Collector, another core card, uh, typically a three or four of. This is a 1-1 uh, Elf Warrior. It doesn't sound that great. Uh, but whenever another creature you control enters the battlefield or dies, if that creature's power is greater than Pell Collector, it's put a 1-1 counter on PC. As long as PC has three or more counters on it, it has Trample. So this is your other one drop, of course. But this offers explosive aggressive starts because your curve is naturally progressing to these stronger and stronger creatures. And so PC can easily be like a 3-3 on turn two and like a 4-4 later. So that's like a decent wild in the cattle impression. Like if you, you know, turn two Burning Tree Emissary, then use that mana to make a cast a 3-2 Voltaic Brawler, 
you know, that's 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 a nice three three swinging on turn two. And then, but what's really cool is it grows when more powerful creatures die. Something I didn't even realize this card did until just now. I've totally forgot about that. Yeah, so like it, it gives your opponent this t- these tough choices that turn into potentially losing battles. Like if they're killing your four four, your pell collector gets stronger. Um, you know, this, this is one of those cards that can be worse on the draw, of course, because especially against other creature decks, because it's not going to scale into theirs very well. And I don't think I'm going to be pressuring my opponent well with it, but it's it's awesome when it's working. And it's definitely important to the deck. I mean, there's nothing like a one drop that becomes a four four. Yeah. Like <laughs> Sounds good. It's great. Makes sense. And even if it's not a four four, like even just a, a, a two two on turn two or a three three on turn two or later is really nice. Like it's just the kind of card that you know, I don't know, Stan, like you said, like if we had four elves, would we, would we be playing Pell Collector? I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I th- I think this is just a deck where like you want to have a threat that scales. Having it be one mana is incredible. And so it, I, I can't imagine you would take this out. I think it's more than you want to have a threat that scales. I think you want to have a cheap threat that you can get into your aggressive plan as early as turn one. Yeah. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I mean, if it was a cur- if if Kurt Ape was legal, maybe you would be happy with Kurt Ape, you know, because it doesn't <laughs> right. have all the triggers. You can bring it in as a two three. So I can see that. I think what's good too is like it's it, it's not a it's not as conditional a scaling as like let's say a landfall trigger that pumped for the turn because like just growing and then also growing when other things stronger than it die just makes the deck work how it's designed to, which is like oh man, they are giving me a lot of annoying choices on what I'm blocking or what I'm using my removal spells on, and even if I'm doing that it's leaving back behind like this one drop that's now a four four and it's just all kind of ways to annoy the opponent and give them tough choices let's talk about this two drop i think people have heard about it burning tree emissary which is a uh, another core card definitely a core card once suspended in historic card um it uses red green hybrid mana two pips of it and it's a two two but when it etbs you add a red and a green. So this is the first of the truly busted cards in this deck that makes this deck possible, right? Yeah, I think for sure. Like, um, cause what it does is allow you to cheat on mana even more powerfully than Lanamore elves in a lot of ways. And also a lot while doing so you're flooding the board and potentially, like I said, growing that Pell collector. So it leads to like your crazy starts, like where you're maybe putting down, two burning tree emissaries and a voltaic brawler and or even just one burning tree emissary and like another two drop like a uh even just another bone like another burning tree emissary is four power and four toughness for two mana or maybe you just have a, a stomp like the bone crusher giant spell side we'll talk about uh that spell later uh you go for the face just deal that two incidental damage it's a two two for two that you know domed your opponent for two not the best thing in the world but it's at least using your mana efficiently and setting up that uh, three drop without losing the spell side that you wanted in your deck in the first place. So there's just a lot of good things to do with it. It sets up early Ember Cleave swings because if you get two creatures down on turn two, on turn three, you're swinging with the opportunity to cleave. Also really good for your Clothis Devotion. Yeah, for sure, because there's two pips on each of them. So if you've got two Burning Tree Emissaries and a Clothis, all you need is any creature, Yeah, and Clothis is live. Yeah. So Let's not talk about all the broken cards up front here. But I do have a question here. You mentioned this card was suspended, right? They brought it back. Inexplicably brought it back. How yeah. could this deck exist 
without burning tree emissary without the burning tree emissary draws like how much man. better are those draws than the non bte draws man i i don't know no it would be a, it would be a lot worse like a lot worse like i mean i i keep i really only keep sixes or sevens that have burning tree emissaries or lanor elves so that kind of tells you like how much i res- i respect the power of that card to let me go wide and cheat on mana and deploy my hand as fast as possible. So I don't know. I don't think it's very, I don't think it's quite as good. I think it loses a lot of percentage points. Now the question is whether or not those percentage points are relative to the power of the format. Like the deck might still be playable in historic. If it's still in line with everything else that's going on, if this card were to get banned again, but if they were to unsuspend it, I'm tempted to think that they're not going to ban it now because they felt like it was fine. They did the test. You know, I, I don't think we'll ever be it. We'll, you know, who knows what their methodology really is, right? Like maybe, maybe conditions will change in the future. Maybe they'll print yeah. some other card that makes it have to go away. But I thought, I just thought it was an interesting point just to explain how powerful this card is. If you've never played it, it's even powerful in eight whack in modern. All right. So look, decks like this, they got a lot of other aggressive cards in them. And in particular, this deck has some additional options at two drop that is kind of hotly contested. Right, yeah, Shane? I would say so. So I guess my big question here is, you know, one thing that struck me about this is that, you know, two drop creatures is a totally normal thing. A two drop uh, for two or a two, two for two, a bear, totally normal thing. But you have this interesting restriction here where any of the two drops that you have, you want them to play nicely with uh, burning tree emissary, right? Like that's a big constraint on what cards you actually can play. So you can't have a double red. You can't have a double green. You got to have either red and colorless, green and colorless, or red green exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, there's. I don't think there's. There's not a ton of like double red cards that I think I've seen play besides like Ash Zealots, yeah, or something like that, right? It like doesn't in, come up a ton. Pioneer. Um, and I think the perhaps the bigger argument against like the double red or double green cards is are like your three drops and like let's say you don't have a burning tree on two but you do have it on three or something like that and then like you then you're not casting your your uh your, your double pips or, or god forbid like your triple pips like right like like burning tree emissary into uh goblin chain whirler for example something that you're not really able to do people try so that's right at different yeah, points of time yeah they have, and like those decks do exist, but I think there's definitely some some issues in in doing so, or something like a burning tree emissary into a uh, what's that five four elf stand steel leaf steel leaf. steel leaf yeah that would be you know challenging as well so yeah but what's what's good though is that we do have access to a lot of good you know X color like one in a color or uh, red green two drops for us to choose from and stand. Tell me about Voltaic Brawler, because I know that you you and I, I think, had some similar thought patterns on this, but I want to I want to pick your brain on it. I love Voltaic Brawler. It's a two yeah. mana three two that gets bigger when it attacks. What's not to love? It's like a bolt on a body. Yeah. How does it get bigger, though? So when it enters the battlefield, let me just read the card. Be part of it. Yeah. Voltaic Brawler, red green for a three two. When it enters the battlefield, you get two enter- energy counters. And when it attacks, you may pay one energy, and if you do, it gets plus one, plus one, and gains trample until end of turn. You may only pay one energy per turn, so you can't give it plus two, plus two. Bummer, right? I mean, I I love having access to this card. I was playing it early on in my Gruul decks, and not everyone was. I think it's kind of a core card at this point. I think a lot of people are respecting what you did, which is it's it's swinging as a 4-3. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. It also, it also, yeah, like it trades up really well. Like it, it can, it can trade up with like a, a four power or four toughness creature if they have to block with it. You know, tra- it has trample when you pay that, mm-hmm. which is dope. Mm-hmm. Did you ever like do the thing that I love doing, which is like, I'm using my, I'm going to save this energy for when I can activate Haship Oasis. So I have like this seven, uh, six attacking Voltaic Brawler with, with trample with the Hash of Oasis pump. I didn't really play to that end because you have to draw into the Oasis, right? This deck doesn't have any yep. ways to find a land. So no. I, th- I think there was only a handful of games where I was even in a position to activate Hash Up. Yeah. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, like we'll talk about later. It's kind of, uh, it's a gravy card, right? Um, one of the things about Voltaic Brawler is I think it's way better attacking. It's a, it's a fine blocker. Like it's fine. It's a, it's a three power, it's a three toughness, excuse me, three power blocker. So it trades up nicely, even on defense. But this is the kind of card like you want to be attacking with, right? Question. Yeah. Are there any cards in this deck that you don't want to be attacking with? Because I feel well, like when we talk about blocking in this deck, I, I, you're not doing that too much, are you? It depends on, you know, if you're, there are some decks or some matchups where I think you do have to play the control and that does happen. I also think that's one of the things that Burning Tree is good for because you will sometimes get into these positions where swinging with a three power creature is great because it either forces a trade or will get damage through, but swinging with a two is just asking to lose a body. And that's where Burning Tree, I think, is one of your best blockers in the deck, as well as at a certain point in the game, Land or Elves. You mean it's like a chopper yeah. type thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that you can throw away and still got some value out of it, like sort of late game. But yeah, Voltaic Brawler, really good attacker, um, not too shabby on defense. Uh, it's the kind of card that you can think about shaving on the draw, if you need to, because I think it is better as an attacker uh, because it doesn't have haste. So against like a heavy removal deck, you have to, you have to untap with this to get much out of it. So that's where something like uh, the next creature might come into play more than the Voltaic Brawler, and that's Zerta Goblin. Kind of an unassuming red-green two-drop. It has Riot, which lets you... It either comes in as a hasty creature or you get a 1-1 counter placed upon it. So it's either a... 3-3 three, three without haste or a 2-2 two, two with haste, which I think is good optionality. Like sometimes you want to be able to trade up. Like you want to be able to block a three toughness creature with your two drop that lets you maybe trade up to, a, you know, a, a three drop on your opponent's side or something like that. Or you're swinging in with haste. You can do a little shock um, or you you want it to be a three powered creature, maybe dodge something like Cry of the Carnarium from Sultai or maybe Rakdos or something like that. And so it gets out of range of that and lets you uh, attack the next turn with, instead of having no board whatsoever. Yeah, this card is cool because unlike Voltaic Brawler, I actually personally, and let me know if you disagree, I never really wanted to side this out because it's so flexible. Yeah, I think it's the kind of thing where I might, yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where I think you're right, where it's like Zerta is more flexible than Voltaic Brawler, which is nice. Having that extra point of Toughness can be relevant, like I mentioned earlier, because it can block a two-power creature. It can trade up just like Voltaic Brawler can. Um, there are some weaknesses. Like, I don't love it a lot against opposing creature decks, like where I'm just like, I need to be attacking through and like attacking regularly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a fine card. It's a card that I've taken out and put back in a number of times. Like right now, I run three, which is like just a total hedge number, because like this is, I, I have mine built for the ladder than for a tournament. And so it's just kind of, there's some odd numbers here. Dave, have you ever heard have you heard of this next two drop? I was just looking at the write-up about this next card and I was like, you know what? I actually kind of hate this card. 
This card always <laughs> gets in the way of stuff I want to do. This card always gets in the way of Dave's Snapcaster Mages. Or like auras, my Luris stuff. And that card, of course, is Scavenging Ooze. Do you guys remember when this card was like $45? Do you remember that? It was before my time. Before because my time. I, I, think I, I think it had been reprinted at some point when it, I came into Magic. It was an M15, I believe, or M14. Because it was a commander card, right? Yeah, and so it's a legacy play, and it was like a zillion dollars. And then and then they printed it into standard, and everybody was like, whoa. And now it's just always, it can always be done. here. Yeah, now it's always here. Why is it always here? Well... Uh, it eats graveyards. Yeah. It gets bigger. You know, Shane, you say here in the notes, one of the most ubiquitous creatures in magic, and it's certainly one of the most useful two drops that green has ever gotten a hold of, because it's a bear, it's a 2-2 for 1G, and then it has this wild ability to get rid of get rid of creatures out of your opponent's, gra- any card out of your opponent's graveyard, to get bigger, and also for you to gain life, all depending on whatever yeah. you, you choose out of your opponent's graveyard. But being able to have main deck graveyard hate is huge yeah like this this card takes over games at times like it like remember when like we were playing dave and i was against the selesnia deck and like they had like a 15 15 scavenging it was like they had gained 13 life off it and it's had this monstrous creature that i couldn't really do anything about and i was just chump blocking that was a heck of a game that was a that was a wild uh crazy top deck at the end is that vod on your twitch stream uh it probably is yeah people should go and watch shane's most recent gruel league the last our the game that we the game that we played against pork and taxes (laughs) it's just unbelievable how shane managed to win it was dope (laughs) yeah it was dope it involved him drawing two important cards off of double striking someone with garrick's harbinger yeah it was dope well the the second card was a really good one the first one might have been okay but it didn't doesn't didn't matter um yeah but scuse is good it's good in this deck it's it's the kind of thing where it's like it's only main deck because of the meta i think but what do you think stan I think it's probably going to be main deck. So when you say that because of the meta, I think you're referring to Uro because it's a nice main board way to deal with an Uro. And sack. Y- sure. But the fact that it's so good against basically mono red strategies as well, as long as there's other aggressive decks where you might need to worry about your own life total, I think Scooz is relevant. Um, and just right yeah. now, yeah, it's definitely a powerful metagame player, but I think the fact that it's been so resilient across formats for so long kind of speaks to the power and potential of Scoos in a variety of situations. There's an unbelievable number of situations where you want this card. I, I have to think it would stay in this deck. Sometimes you want the life. Sometimes you have to get rid of a payoff. Sometimes you want a threat that gets bigger. That's a lot of stuff yeah. for two mana. Yeah, it's like when we were talking about this deck like maybe two weeks ago in the Slack and we were kind of just iterating on like our two drop selections and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, what are the ceilings and floors of these cards? And, you know, is, is Scavenging News better than that fourth Zerta? Is it better than two uh, Galias? Is it better than Robber of the Rich? And like, there's there's so many ways in which Scavenging News never stinks. And it's just, it's super valuable that way. Yeah. Speaking of Galia of the Endless Dance, this is a non-core card, I would say. It's kind of it comes in and out, maybe a two of or something like that. It's a redded green for another bear, a two-two bear. Uh actually a, a bear for two, as usual. With haste, it gives your other satyrs plus one, plus one, and haste. There's no other satyrs. Uh the, the reason that you run this is the text. Whenever you attack with three or more creatures, you may discard a card at random if you do draw two cards so it ostensibly is providing ongoing card advantage in a longer game where this card's surviving and you're attacking with your other creatures and 
it's definitely one of the cards that other people seem to like, but I kind of don't like, I don't think it's valuable enough in the slot right now over other things that we're running because here's my annoyances. And I'm curious if you have, if you have ever played with this card, if you agree with me, y'all like, so one, if you're attacking with three or more creatures, you're already in a good spot. Um, if you have to have number two, if you have to have a card that you, you have to have a card you want to discard, like, let's say like an early drop creature or like a land. And then two a, you have to not have a card. You don't want to discard. Like I'm frequently keeping hasty creatures back against like controlling decks. Or if I'm running, let's say a collected company, I'm just sort of sandbagging that because I want to recover quickly from like a wrath or I want to provide like some surprise damage or like I don't have enough red mana to cast Embercleave and I don't want to discard it yet or something like that. And so ultimately I kind of am frequently saying no when I get the prompt, do I want to dis- discard a random card? And I found Galia to be like just a 2-2 haste more often than not. And then I'd rather just have a main deck scavenging use or a main deck Zerta than her. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because the only card you ever probably want to discard is extra lands. Like Llanowar Elf. Maybe a Llanowar Elf. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Burning Tree Emissary later on, maybe. Yeah. So like it's it's the situation has to be very right. And like I was surprised how often it was not right i would posit to you that i should be discarding everything yeah see but other than embercleave yeah that's the thing is i as it was always embercleave it was like always embercleave like collected company i think but, you're right where it's like i mean you know but embercleave was always the card i didn't want to be discarding but, but you can't discard questing beast there's so many cards yeah, you, in that you, and that too it's like i don't want to discard a questing well, beast. you can't well, discard spellbreaker if you have one card in your hand then it's you know what's going to happen and so you can make an informed choice but i i would say I would just say that the, what this means to, to me is that you're a little like randomness averse and that sometimes you might want to like, there might be situations where it's worth it to just embrace the the RNG, yeah. you know, regardless of what's in your hand, just to get more cards. Because a lot of the cards in this deck are the same ish card. Yes. You know, like there's not that they're filler, but they're, they're all equally good at doing things for sure. So, but like, like, I think the with Galia, even to get Galia's trigger going, like to have three creatures and like with Galia, like attacking was not always like that reliable. And like I said, it was the kind of thing where it's like, I'm fine where I am, like kind of thing where it's like, um, either I was empty handed because I was just, I kept throwing creatures onto the board, but like maybe I should have taken the two cards off that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I think it's not a bad card. I think it's just, I'd rather play my other two drops right now, especially because I think Zerta as a three, three, is very valuable as a blocker in a creature meta or can be very, you know, very good as a blocker in a creature meta. I think there's a lot of good cases to do either one. And it is a little bit of like what style you prefer to play. Cause you're definitely, like I said, you're leaning into variance if you play this card. And there's other really good ways to get card advantage back in this deck. And I think Galia is not a great way to do it. And we'll talk about some of those options. As someone who's never cast a Galia and I vowed that I never will. I'm with Shane on this because this is a deck that wants to play cards first main phase. And that's kind of why I took that moment to say the only cards you want to ditch are like Deadlands or extra Llanowar Elves because you're living off the top of your deck where so many of your creatures are bolt spells on a body. And you kind of try to critical mass your opponent as quickly as possible so that if you're playing that RNG and maybe throwing away a Zerta or a Spellbreaker because you get to see two cards later, you're still slowing down the velocity of your deck. Right. But let me let me just throw one thing out there really quick. Just like I think the math here is sort of like 
every draw is one third chance to draw land, two thirds chance to draw action. And so if you end up discarding action to get two shots at drawing two action cards, it's pr- not necessarily the worst odds. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we don't have to go deeper on it. Like I get why people wouldn't want to invite that kind of unknown into their game plan, but I can see the pluses too. Yeah. Um, let's let's run through a few a few more cards. Let's say the three drop slot now. Bonecrusher Giant, another core card. You know what this does? One red for like your shock spell side, uh, and then the creature side is two and a red for a four three shocks the opponent if it's targeted. So this is kind of your one of some of your only interaction in game one when you need it. And then your four power attacker also on game plan. Incidental damage if it gets removed, also important, works in all sorts of good ways. This is a card that you can side out in certain matchups. All the time. Like against Sultai, it's not really doing enough. Exactly. It's just like, what am I targeting? Like I, I take it out often if I have a better three drop and or even a two drop and I don't have anything that I'm targeting with this. Yeah. Like if it's like, I need to bring in this card because of X, Y, or Z and I have nothing to target, well, Bonecrusher Giant comes out. Gruel Spellbreaker. Core card, always a four of one red green for another riot creature. So a three, three haster or a four, four without haste also has trample. Excellent for getting that additional damage through, uh, especially with, like, like I said, pumped with that hash up oasis. Uh, when it's your turn, spellbreaker and you have X proof. So it makes your opponent have to time certain spells in less advantageous ways. You know, you can throw an Evercleave on it. If the cleave resolves, it's not going to get picked off by removal a uh, valuable card, flexible card, really good. You ever side this out? I don't think so. Same. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. It, it, this just is one of the best creatures in your deck, I think. You're kind of always happy to cast it, and if you have a path to casting this on turn two, or even turn three, I think that's a pretty good opener. Oh, yeah. It's just it's a, it's just a big body. Uh, it, I love... It, you'd, you'd think that it's like, I'm always casting this as like a three, three with haste type thing, but like there's so many situations where I cast as a four, four. And I love the flexibility there where it really plays on how riot was intended to be used. And I think it works great as, as, as both options. All right. Let's talk about this big woolly mammoth, the mammoth in the room. Other it's Kazandu mammoth. So this is a, a green MDFC. You can cast it as a three, three for one GG that has a landfall trigger it gets plus two plus two whenever a land enters the battlefield plus two plus two you can also play it as a tapped green land it does mm-hmm. not come in untapped ever unless you have an amulet of vigor <laughs> in historic um how often were you playing this as a land side stan basically never unless i'm like mulliganing to five and it's yeah and i need like a t- an untapped land by turn two or three, I might bring in this tap yeah. on turn one, but I only wanted to play this as a creature. This is like the card. This is the card you throw back when you mold to five. Sure, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Agree. Um, yeah, it's it's this card is awesome when it's working, and there's so many times when it's like fine. Do you mean like either you don't have double green mana, or it's like or you know it it just sits there without any land drop trigger, your landfall triggers or something like that. Um, but it's it is handy to be able to play it for the mana. Like there's a lot of times when it's like, okay, I can set up my next turn by playing this tapped and like playing a different two drop or something like that. So it's it gives you flexibility. And then when it's going, a five five for three is amazing. 
when you're attacking in with it. But yeah. again, it's better as an attacker than as a blocker because it's not, you know, it's not a four powered creature trading up or something like that, or even trading into other three drops at this point. So I don't know. It's a card that I did sideboard out a lot. Like I, I run two main deck and I frequently go down, go down to one, especially on the draw because it is better as an attacker. Um, and I don't, and I know I'm going to have like one more draw into like a, a land. Like I don't need this to be like an extra land, but I don't know. It's a, it's a fine card. I think it's definitely not core. It's like something you're going to play one or two of, if any. Yeah. I can kind of see this card being replaced one day. If there's another powerful three, three for three that scales, this card might, might have to take a pass, take a seat. Dave, tell me about Clothis. You know what? I'd love to tell you about Clothis, but I'm going to nominate that Stan tell you about Clothis because this is Stan's card. Stan does love Clothis. I do love Clothis. She plays very differently here than she does in Modern. Let's talk about it. One red, green for a four or five indestructible god. But your devotion to red and green has to be at least seven for her to actually be a creature. But even if she isn't a creature, she does have this triggered ability at the beginning of your first main phase, meaning after you draw a card... You may exile a card from any graveyard. If the exiled card is a land, you can add red or green to your mana pool. If the exiled card is a non-land, you gain two life and your opponent takes two damage. Each opponent for your multiplayer historic games. Also (laughs) true. Also true. I love historic brawl, you guys. So, you know. (laughs) Listen, historic brawl is a fine event when it comes up on weekends. This was, I think, a one-of in the deck that Shane and I played. and Yeah, I run a one-of. I think it's good as a one-of. It can maybe be a two-of in certain situations. She, She's weird, right? She's similar to Scooz in that there's some games where she just takes over and she becomes such an important spell, especially if you can get her out on turn two against something like Sultai. She's going to generate both mana and a life difference and deal with Uro on plan. There's some yeah. there's some games where you're gonna have a really hard time even ever turning into a creature, and there there's nothing in any graveyard for her to you know um, like generate any value for you. So she's kind of weird in that way. It feels like Clothis would like always be a creature in this deck. Is that is that not true? It's definitely not true. You put so many permanents down though. Well, there's certain like what's funny is some of the matchups she's best against are when you face the most removal. So it's like you you're you're getting your creatures killed. But those are also frequently graveyard decks. And so, like, you're kind of managing their graveyard with Clothis. Clothis, they have a hard time removing Clothis uh, because uh, it's indestructible. And so you're kind of getting... That's like a... It's like a tech piece when you think that it's like, oh, this is just my my creature that's going to be huge and indestructible. And that's kind of an added advantage of why you could be main decked, right? Like, it's it's a card that's good when you're a creature deck, but it's also good against many of the decks that are trying to fight you on that axis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's hard to be proactive with her because you don't really play a lot of interaction in your deck. So you're not affecting what's in people's graveyards usually unless they're chump blocking your your beaters. Yeah. So that's why sometimes like I'll side her out if I feel like there's going to be a matchup where she's just going to sit there. For sure. Um, but Clothes is great. Uh, I like I like having access to it. It's one of those things where it's like it's almost like a pre-sideboarded card to me mm-hmm. where it's like it's mm-hmm. kind of like in my 75 kit of parts uh and yeah it's it's never it's never terrible i think 
All right, so we are just going through these th these creatures. There's a couple more creatures to go. This deck is just all creatures. All right, Rampaging Ferocidon, sometimes main deck. Um, it's frequently, more frequently sideboard. Uh, two and a red for a 3-3 three, three with Menace. Also makes your opponents unable to gain life. Also pings any player when they have a creature, ETB, even you, which can be annoying. Um, good against life gain decks. You might see again the latter. Uh, good against Uro decks. Um, yeah, I think it's a good card. Yeah, it's a good card. Um, it's, it's not a card that I want to main deck, but it's, there's an argument for it in the three drop slot, which is also not fully fleshed out. You know what I mean? There's, there's some options there. Right. This could replace mammoth potentially in a, in a very different metagame where let's say goblins is super prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Like if life gain was more popular, like let's say it was like an aura's meta or something like that. Mm -hmm. So Shane, there is one three drop that you left off of here. Which one's that? Garrick's Harbinger. Yeah, I mean, that's more, it's more of a sideboard card. I'm kind of weird because I pre-sideboard one. Like I run one, but I don't think a lot of people do. Uh, I have that, I have it on the sideboard part. Oh, it's down there. Okay. I was like, where is, that guy saved us. He did. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that was amazing. Okay. This is a big card you're going to talk about now. You know, you talk about it. I, I've literally never played one of these, oh but here gosh, it is. Oh my gosh, you're terrible. Questing Beast. QB everybody's favorite pile of text on a card. Maybe other than Uro. Maybe other than Oko. Maybe I, there's other ones. The original Obolet printing, that had a lot of text too. Sure was... did. <laughs> uh, two green green gets you vigilance, death touch, haste, and a 4-4 four, four body. It also does weird things, like it can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less, which I really wish they had a name for that ability. Even if we, even if we had like a shorthand for that ability, it would be nice. It's like a, isn't it like a skulk-ish? Like what's skulk? Skulk is uh, creatures with power greater than than the power this creature has can't block it. Oh, okay. Okay, well, no, it's not that then. All right, combat damage you dealt cannot be prevented, and if Questing Beast deals damage to an opponent, you can have that damage, that much damage be dealt to a Planeswalker they control. Yeah, so in addition to, not, it's not redirecting it. It does it as well. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so there's this is the weirdest card, and it's super annoying. Yeah, and the animation on Arena is terrible. It's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like three low-res old men. <laughs> <laughs> on Cerberus. Yeah. yeah, it's like the lamest Hydra. I mean, this... I, I kind of hate this card too. I mean, if you, you hate it because of how good it is, right? I do hate it because of how good it is. I hate it because like, I forget that it's another, that's a giant haste threat that could come out of their deck. I hate it because it has vigilance like and death touch. So it's just like, I'm just taking this damage. I'm just taking this damage every time. And then when they Amber cleave it, it's like, okay. This card is so insane in a deck full of insane creatures. I don't think there's any matchup where it's not your best creature still. Yeah, I mean, it, it does cost four, so that's like an, a potential issue. Eh, you're playing it on turn three. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really good. Like, it's it just solves so many problems. Like, I actually, it's 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 core in that there's almost always one, but I think that there's arguments to running two, three of these, and like right now, I'm not running Collected Company because I'd rather play Questing Beast. Um, we'll talk about that four drop uh, really soon. It just does. It just does so many things that you want to have a card do. That uh, it's awesome. What else is there to say about Questing Beast other than it's like so much value for a four drop? You, you know, here's what I'll say about Questing Beast: If Burning Tree Emissary ever gets banned, I think this card and Spellbreaker and Alanor Elves are so good as a little three card package that Gruul will always have potential. Yeah, there's something there's something for the deck to do for sure. 
So we just talked about Coco. We'll save the best card for last. Coco. So Coco was certainly on my list of broken cards that are in this deck, but... It's not always anymore. Interesting. People are shaving it. Like even Paulo Vito Dama de Rosa shaving. I think he maybe ran one in the MPL list. And I think he was just saying like the deck doesn't need it. And the But let's first talk about the, the card because a lot of people still do run three to four of them. Three and a green for an instant. Look at the top six cards of your library. Put up to two creatures with CMC three or less onto the battlefield. Uh, card advantage, instant spell. Awesome for surprise attackers, blockers, recovering at the opponent's end step after they wrath you or maybe cast a planeswalker and bounce something really important. Like I'm, like I said, I'm less interested in it than I used to be um, because I think there's just such a density of creatures already that like they're already sort of just replacing themselves. Like I don't need to pick out the the best three drops out of the top six cards because I've already have so many. Um, and I think just questing beast is a little bit better for me right now, but I don't know. I think there's, there's arguments to be made for both. I have not missed collect a company yet and I've played a number of matches without it. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I think that most people, like you said, would think that this was a must have, but yeah, I don't think it is. And I think it's, it's close to, but this deck is not like a, it's not a, I need specific things. I mean, frequently you want some kind of card that maybe has haste for like, you know, the utmost final points of damage or something like that. But I think that you're, you're better off playing other cards. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people see this card the way that, that PV described it on Twitter, which is and the way we talked about it is card advantage. But I do think that there's a good case to be made for this card being better for getting creatures that have more special abilities or to help yeah. you dig for your deck for something specific, right? Because it gives you six looks at some kind of payoff in a creature combo deck sometimes in modern at different points in time. If you think about this card in Bant Spirits, you could go and try to get the piece that you needed then, whether that was Spell Queller or whether you needed a Rattle Chains or whether you needed Drogskull Captain, depending on the format they were talking about here. Like, those are cards that give you benefit in a certain situation that also give you the card advantage at the same time. And so you get this real like big push off of collected company. If you're just getting like gruel spellbreaker and Zertog goblin off of it, it's kind of like, it's fine. It's still a two for one, but you don't necessarily yeah. need it. And the other thing that gets weird about collected company too, honestly, is it's kind of slow. Like it's a little slow. Sometimes I feel like depending on when you get to play it. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's one more issue with collected company is it's hard to not signal to your opponent that you have it. Like if there's four mana up and a card in their hand, there's always, I think, a pretty clear sign that they're holding up Coco. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Every yeah. time someone has four mana up and a card in their hand, I'll say to myself, they have Coco. And guess what? They wait for me to tap out and then they cast a Coco. They cast Coco. Yeah. Or they wait for you to attack and then they're like, ha ha. <laughs> yeah. And... I think that, like I said, one of the cards I'd rather run is Questing Beast, but the other card I'd rather run the full playset of, and I think to do that, you have to take out at least one of your Kogos, is Embercleave. Because frequently it's like, an, it's like a three of, and I think that that is wrong. Um, even if, though it's a legendary piece of equipment uh, that you don't want two of, the first is so good that I always want one. So I, I want the, the most odds I have to get to Embercleave. And Embercleave... If you have not seen it on Arena, uh, the first day you play it, you probably will in some format or another. It's a, this insane combat trick slash equipment rolled into one, and it's a four red red for legendary equipment with flash. 
but it costs one generic less for each attacking creature. When it ETBs, you attach it to a target creature you control, gives that creature plus one, plus one, trample, and double strike. So this is like winning you the game or distorting the game in such a way that it's close to over or over pretty soon. And, you know, it has flash, so it makes your opponent have to think about their blocks in like these crazy ways. Like sometimes even if you don't have it, you're coming out ahead in some manner because they have to block like you do. Because it's the kind of card that if you don't block right and your opponent ember cleaves you, the game's over because it just did so much damage to you. Um, I consider cleave, it's like one of the most broken cards in historic. Like, because when, when you resolve it, the game's over. And the, the mirror revolves around Embercleave being cast and you to be the first person to have Embercleave. It accelerates your damage-based wins in like this, these totally crazy ways because it can be cast for so cheap. Yeah, Shane, something you, you told me once about Gruul that I've thought about a lot is one of the best things you can do against a Gruul player is just hold up an answer to Embercleave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a game break. You have to. You, you can't not hold it up like it's well a card like a braid you know you might be tempted to use it on a spellbreaker on your turn you know what i mean but i think sometimes if if they're building toward a number cleave play and we might talk later about what that looks like you're going to do more for your own defense to actually get rid of an ember cleave than maybe picking off one of their countless interchangeable creatures exactly and i yeah. i would do you one better and say there are times when you're playing creature decks where you should just not cast a creature and just hold up your answer for for ember cleave and not build your board because you need because it'll just kill you yeah if you don't so it's it's the kind of card that if you block wrong if you do your combat math wrong and then you just die you're like oh oh i, I I'm, I'm at zero because i just miscounted because like ember cleave is the double strike the trample the plus one plus one you know, all that kind of stuff like if they have a death toucher then the trample math is different and you know, it's all that kind of stuff that you really have to consider that's why it's absurd on questing beast yeah yeah all right, let's want to breeze through this mana real fast. Like, there's nothing, I mean, mountains, forests, pathways, shocks, maybe a couple deserts and Ramanap Ruins and Hashup Oasis for like some reach or some, you know, creature pump. Uh, how many times did you use Shatter, Shatter Skull Smashing as a damage spell, Stan? Never had to. May, maybe once, but, you know, this is, I'm going to reveal my own bias. I don't love that card. I think it's a little expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. It's expensive. Every once in a while, like maybe maybe five percent of the time, I use it as a spell, and ninety five percent of the time, I use it as a either an ex, a, a lightning bolt land or a you know or a tap land. And, and likewise, when I use it as a spell, I think that's kind of a hail mary anyway. I don't think you necessarily want to be in a position where you have to do that because there's so many other more valuable things to use your mana on in a deck like this because it means you're in a controlling position, which is not the position you want to be anyway. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten blown, gotten blown out by this on draws where I've had like, oh, I have a slow draw with auras and I'm going to play Alcyid and uh, Selfless Savior and try to go do a go wide strategy. And they're just like, nope, I'm just going to kill both of them with one spell. And then it's like, great, I can't use yeah. either one to protect the other. So I think there's good moments for it. One thing I wanted to ask you about the mana, Shane, was yeah. we talked a little bit about on your stream about how the mana is not quite as good as it feels like it should be for what's just a two color deck. Yeah. Can you talk real quick about like what the tricky part is there? Is it trying to go from red green on turn two to something else on turn three or like what? Where's the problem? The hardest part is because your mana dorks make green and you need to have access to green for early green plays. You can't not run a significant number of forests and 
everything else, like one of your main win cons revolves around having double red. So I will oftentimes play something to have double red access in case I like, in case I top deck uh, an Embercleave because having an Embercleave rod in your hand and not win you the game is extremely bad. So the main time that comes into play is with your Kazandu Mammoth or maybe your Rampaging Ferocidon if you're playing that main deck or side from out of the sideboard. But frequently it's not that bad, but you can have a little bit of a challenge always having access to double green for Questing Beast while also having double red for Embercleave. Um, I, I, I'd love to maybe put a, put a bow on this section about lands, a couple things that I sort of forgot and had to relearn while I was playing that might be useful. Ramanap ruins. This is the land that you can use to shock opponents. You can do this at instant speed. Hashup Oasis, which is the land you use to pump <laughs> yes. your board can only be done at sorcery speed. Yeah. So Which don't is, forget Yeah, that. you can't trick people. That's 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 one of the major downsides of Hash of Oasis. You can't like, oh, this is the unblocked creature, and now it's plus three, plus three. The other thing I'll mention, this deck is not playing Fabled Passage, and I'm only bringing that up to to reiterate that Kazandu Mammoth is never bigger than a 5-5. Five five. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Last thing. Yeah. You can sacrifice Haship Oasis to Ram and Ab Ruins. Yes, you can. Don't forget that you can sacrifice any desert to a desert. So, so you can you can get two two uh Two uses of it, yeah. if you so so choose. All right, sideboard stuff. We talked about some of these earlier. Rampaging Ferocidon, you know, life gain decks, Uro decks, etc. Scavenging Ooze, also in the sideboard. Recursion strategies, Uro, Sacrifice, creature decks when you're trading and, you know, dying and stuff like that. Scoos can take over that game. Clothis, also in the sideboard sometimes. Garrick's Harbinger. Dave mentioned this card. Of course he did. Dave Harbinger. Um... This is this is this this card has hexproof from black. Note not protection. So you can't just attack through black creatures. But when it deals combat damage to a player or a planeswalker, you get to look at cards, that many cards on the top of your library. So you get to look at like four if it's a four-power creature. You can then choose a creature card or a Garrick planeswalker from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom in any order. It's card advantage if it connects with any with a creature or a I mean, excuse me, player or planeswalker. Yeah. Hexproof from black. Is that relevant in any matchups besides sometimes like a red black deck because you can't get targeted by Mayhem Devil, but more or Fatal Push or or, or more frequently, I felt like it was really only relevant against Saltai. Yeah, I mean, I would bring it in. It's definitely Rakdos. It's Rakdos, Jund, Sack and Saltai. Uh, it's amazing against those. It's great. One more thing I think important to note, you know, unlike Mantis Rider, where the card is a little guy on top of the Mantis. In Garuk's Harbinger, the creature is actually the big green creature and not the little guy on top of the creature. Okay, good. Good yeah, to know. Cleared up. Yeah. Um, the, the the thing that Dave is mentioning in terms of the crazy, really long game win they, when they had the 15-15 scavenging news. Okay, so uh, I top decked into the Embercleave finally, and I had to swing out because they, their board was big enough uh, that... You um, were going to die. I was going to die. So I just had to swing and just hope they blocked poorly. They blocked very well. Um, the player knew what they were doing. They were very good. They were like, they were letting stuff die and then eating it with, with like, uh, you know, the scavenging news. They had just enough fodder to like keep themselves out of lethal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I put the Embercleave onto Garrick's Harbinger, which then made it hit twice with Trample and uh, the Trigger. Yeah, mostly so, because of an advantageous block. Like yes, they were, they exactly. were like, oh, I didn't think about it. Yeah, honestly, we were just like, this is the one to put it on. Let's see what happens. Uh, yeah, I forgot about the double strike thing. I think didn't, not realizing realizing that um, 
we thought they blocked poorly. They actually blocked fine. They had two life left. Uh, the second card I drew off of the second hit of Garrick's Harbinger was a Bone Crusher Giant, and they were out of green mana. <laughs> so I uh, just shocked them with Bone Crusher Giant's stomp and won the game, and everyone cheered. It was great. Unreal. Yeah, it was great. So many Twitch subs after that moment. Oh, my God. Oh, just like one, maybe. All right. Um, these next few cards, you know them, you love them. It's a braid. A raid you got to bring in to try to kill other Ember Cleaves. And also, it's good to have a little flex removal against certain decks. Goblins, it's good against. I mean, you could even bring it in against Auras if you want to make sure you have something to try to kill their creatures before they suit them up. Because, uh, you know, when I play against Gruul, I do sort of sometimes roll the dice that they don't have a Bone Crusher Giant, and it works out pretty often. So, um, something to keep in mind. Graft Digger's Cage, it's just good. Every deck's got them. Every deck needs them. And... Uh, the last one is Chandra Torch of Defiance. It's a good card. Uh, this is one that I was surprised to see in the sideboards, but it's nice to have a little bit of card draw through um, a control matchup. Yeah, resolving this against control is like my main goal. And you can do a little extra damage with your plus, and you can ramp off of it if you want to for some reason. So lots of stuff there. There's some other stuff like Red Cap Melee, like kills red stuff. Like I think that's also good against Goblins or the Mirror even potentially. A Crow in War sees play. It can like steal a cheap creature, I think, or steal any creature. I don't I don't play that. It's 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 a it's a saga. It's pretty cool. Um I don't know. So thinking about sideboarding, we'll get into kind of playing gruel more, but I think the most important thing is think about play draw a lot yeah. in your sideboarding decisions. Um there's a lot of cards that are better on the play than they are on the draw, like Pell Collector or maybe Voltaic Brawler or like Kazandu Mammoth, even Chandra 4. It can be too slow on the draw in certain matchups. Um, I really frequently think about how my creatures are going to be able to attack or block. Like I want to have a lot of power for the CMC if it's creature decks because I, I want to be able to trade up or block large toughness creatures more easily and just sort of control the board in that way. Like I don't want to be chump blocking as much as I can. Shane. Yes. Gruel is so much more than a pile of creatures. Yeah, maybe. For you, it's <laughs> a way of life. It's a mindset. <laughs> oh, I think I like it because it is a lot of uh, a lot of strong creatures that you still have to make a few decisions in terms of like here and there. But a lot of times you are an autopilot. Like um, I, I, I am interested to pick your brain and you played you played it to very good success, I think, Stan, uh, in a couple of events on Arena. That's true. Well, you didn't challenge me, Shane. <laughs> I also would say, I know you just said that you're on autopilot a lot, but I, I, I sat with you through six matches and it was a lot of like, should we do this or should we do that? Like it's, it didn't feel that different from a lot of aggressive decks to me as far as figuring out what the best, uh, the best sequence was and how to play to your outs and set yourself up for future turns and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, man, that's why it's good. It's not, it's not a combo deck. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not like in fact, or it's not like even maybe auras. I know Dave, that you, you, there's a lot of decisions in auras, but it's still like, you know, get something huge on the board and take over. Right. right? And I think like with gruel, there's enough creatures on the board that you have to sort of make decisions on your attacks or your blocks and, you know, how, what you're going to deploy to the board and et cetera, et cetera. But we talked about what goes into the deck. And I think now it's more important to talk about what you're thinking about as you're playing as the deck. And this goes way back to the kind of the fundamentals. Am I the control or am I the beatdown here? Because that really impacts how you play this deck. And hopefully you're the beatdown because that's what the deck is designed to do. But that's going to be informed by like the matchup. And also, again, if you're on the player, the draw. And even when you, I, I, 
I'm assuming we're about to go into a little more detail of this, but even when you are the quote-unquote control, there always comes a point where you're going to try to turn the corner and become the beatdown. Exactly. And that could just be as easy as top-taking an ember cleave, where it's like I was trying to control the board, and I was trying to get to a point where I'm now able to attack in because I'm threatening something that you have to account for. And even if you block, like I'm likely going to be left with the Ember cleaved up creature that I have first strike on the, if you attack into me, blah, blah, blah. I think against an, as an aggressive deck, like you want to be applying pressure to your opponent, right? You want to be lowering their life total. You want to be making them address your game plan, which then hopefully is impacting their ability to deploy theirs. So like if Sultai is casting a sweeper instead of an Anissa, if they're casting a removal spell instead of a growth spiral, if they're pointing, you know, if someone's pointing burn at your creatures instead of your face, or they're like chump blocking with that curious obsession up flyer, like when you're pressuring an opponent, that makes them have to make tough decisions. And so, of course, the first thing is, you know, what are my hands looking like that I'm keeping to allow me to do this? And I think that's kind of stuff that's like that lets you ramp out, like whether it has Lanor Elves or Burning Tree Emissary cheating on mana, getting your hand to the board. You know, when you're looking at your hand, it's like tap land on one, two drop on two, three drop on three is like a typical normal game plan. Like for Gruel, your deck is capable of more. And so make it do more, like ask your deck to do more. And I'm trying to mulligan to that. Didn't say please. <laughs> please deck. Um, And like, so if you're lucky, the game plan is flood the battlefield attack until the opponent's dead. But that's not always as easy as you hope. Like sometimes it's close enough, right? Yes. Like controlling strategies, you're trying to overwhelm their point removal with your creatures. Don't overplay into sweepers like Wrath of God or Extinction events. And that's kind of like probably the most challenging aspect of those matchups is like how much damage do I need to get in without losing the game to that sweeper? One of the things that I think this deck is so good at is surviving sweepers because so many of your creatures have haste. And I think, and I think that's kind of what gives this deck legs and a plan against what might otherwise be really abysmal controlling strategies. Because I can't even think of like a modern deck that is an aggressive, stompy creature-based strategy that can rebound from like a supreme verdict or um, a miracle. Whose name is the terminus? A, a terminus, right? That can like rebuild and keep chipping away so quickly just because it has three and four power creatures that are able to swing as soon as they come down again. Yeah. That's a definite advantage of the deck. Also like with the extinction event, it's even odd, right? So like right. playing to build a board where like, I don't, I frequently will kind of sandbag creatures of different CMCs because it's like, well, I know they have extinction event or like, I'm fine. I'm fine right now. And I'm going to force them to have the extinction event. And I don't want to play out all my gruel spellbreakers or something like that, because it'll recover real well by casting another one after they sweep up the board. And I have like, let's say two burning tree emissaries left because they had to choose odd and something like that. So yeah, I do think event is one of those skill testing cards for the soul type players, because depending on how you deploy it, it can be really, really good against gruel where if you're choosing even, I found that'll undo a lot of the work that might come out of the group players, explosive turn twos where maybe they've chained one or two burning tree emissaries and put down a Zerta or a brawler or a Galia, right? Or if you're choosing odd, that might mean you've undone all of their, you know, big ramped out payoffs, their, um, 
they're spell breakers. Yeah. They're Garuk, Garuk's Harbinger. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's kind of the first big test I think in playing this deck is how to deploy against controlling strategies. And then I think the next test is even though you outclass other creature decks frequently, there's a lot of times when you're playing against decks that have creatures that are really part of an engine and you have so little efficient removal. Stan talked about this earlier is you really have to choose how you're using your stomp and your abrade, even your shatter skull smashing. And you have to use that really well. Um, you know, I likely I'm trying to force the opponent to block with their non engine creatures so I don't have to remove them. And I'll save that stuff for like the priest of the forgotten gods in the sacrifice deck, right? Or the mayhem devil or like core spirit dancer in your auras deck, Dave, or like goblin lords that are providing haste and goblins and so on. Yeah, I mean, those are all the key cards that you have to, to hit the weaknesses of those decks. I mean, it's hard in that situation, right? Because main deck, you can get priest, but main deck, you can't get mayhem devil, you know, out of sack. And then, in core spirit, Dan, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but in auras, you can, it outscales damage based removal so quickly that there's other weird things that goes on that go on there. So the, the, not only is there not much interaction in this deck, I feel like like against the decks that are really relevant, the window in which you get to use that interaction is kind of slim. And so you have to be aware of when you're playing one, one of those decks, I would think so that you can maybe skip playing a creature for a turn. Like I said, because you know, if someone goes core spirit, goes like selfless savior into core spirit dancer into an aura, like you're kind of done. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. It's, it can be really bad. That's like one of the toughest matchups for sure. Like we'll talk about. And then I think when you play against decks with counter magic and other kinds of interaction, like knowing when and what to cast is really important because like, let's say you're playing against mono blue. You can really provide enough pressure early on to like make that mono blue opponent tap mana before or during combat, right? Like let's say they, they want to maybe cast an Aether Gust or they want to maybe cast a flash blocker or something like that. And then you can cast something post-combat to attack with the next turn. Like if you're trying to do it pre-combat, if you're like, well, I'll make them have it. I'm going to cast this Gruel, Gruel Spellbreaker and then they cast one of like those random flying counter spells where it's like, or, you know, the mana beak or something like that. Yeah. And you're like, well, I can't, I can't do anything with this. But if you just attack, then that's fine. Because frequently, like they're they're not doing anything that's dramatically impacting your game plan, probably, and then you get more board presence for the next turn and continue applying that pressure in that way, rather than let them use their cards to their best of the best way they can. And then something like you know control strategies, like just apply pressure to make them tap out for that expensive wrath, and then like we've been talking about, is like rebuild quickly with like maybe a couple Zertog goblins. Or like that questing beast that is somewhat tough for them to remove. Um, you know, that card advantage that they're getting back with their wrath isn't that big of a deal. Like when they're at zero life and they've got two cards left in hand. Or they have like counter spells they couldn't use against your questing beast because they were tapped out. Stan, anything that you thought about in your experiences playing this deck that I haven't mentioned? Like how to gruel? Like how were you thinking about playing this deck? Well, I was fortunate that I had some of your keep mole heuristics in my back pocket from both watching you play and and really hearing you talk about this deck i don't know gruel is easy just keep, it can be keep good hands attack think about what your opponent's doing i mean what what else what else is there 
if you have like a basic understanding of sequencing and knowing what yeah. is going on in a metagame, this isn't a hard deck to pick up. I think playing against Gruel is a little bit more interesting, actually, just because this deck, yeah. I find, is very predictable in what is in its suite and what it's trying to do, that playing against Gruel, I think, is more testing than actually piloting it. Yeah, so go on with that. Like, how do you think the, like, in terms of the predictability, like, when you're playing against Gruel, you've played probably more against it than I have. Like, I'm only starting to see the mirror a little bit more recently. Right, well, match Arena Matchmaker intentionally matches you against the mirror so i think as i put it the cards are predictable and when we were going through the cards like it was so many two mana creatures with like two and three power that swing with haste or maybe swing for four damage right and that seems to be the theme of the deck right either be hasty or be big ideally both and when playing against it i think one of the best skills that I've developed across different decks is knowing when to save my interaction and what's actually worth a removal spell. Yes. You know, because sometimes hard-to-kill creatures in the Gruul deck can be answered by a Priest of Forgotten Gods. And, mm-hmm. and that includes Clothis, right? If you... Well, actually, I guess it wouldn't include Clothis because she's not a creature if, if you've answered everything else. But something like um, Questing Beast, for example really tough to kill priest of forgotten gods can deal with it really easily if you're able to oh, yeah. answer everything else yeah like that's that happened to me i, I was playing against priest of the forgotten gods and i forgot that it made you sacrifice a creature right so i was like why did my creature just dissolve right oh yeah <laughs> we talked about a braid earlier and i think a braid is a card because it's modal it can be really tempting to throw it at um an attacking brawler or an attacking not attacking but a a a gruel spell breaker when it's your turn but sometimes it's actually much more meaningful to hold it for an ember cleave because that ember cleave is going to be a finisher in a way that a spell breaker might not be on that same turn yeah i think there's there's a few decks in the meta right now that i think they just need to focus on either removing a creature that's gonna wear an ember cleave or the ember cleave itself because like otherwise you can you can hold the fort down if you have slightly bigger bodies or your creatures are growing slowly, like uh, the your more recent uh, Selesnya counters type decks and things like that. I think it's also worth pointing out that Shock is kind of the most common type of creature facing burn spell in the format. Whether it's Stomp, whether it's actual Shock, maybe even something like Magma Spray that you bring in because mm-hmm. you want to exile something. And I think knowing when to deploy your shocks against things like Scooze or Pelt Collector, because these are creatures that might outgrow the type of removal that's in your deck, I think is really important in, in knowing when to make that calculation and knowing when it's safe or necessary to spend a shock on something that could get out of hand. And likewise, yeah. there's a lot of bounce effects in, in the format too. Um, whether it's Brazen Borrower, whether it's that one mana bounce that bounces creatures and enchantments mono blue plays it several other decks occasionally play it too but oh yeah yeah it's from theros beyond death right right yeah. so knowing if you should bounce a creature or maybe save a bounce for a clothis or questing beast or even a, an ember cleave target yeah and like what and when to aether gust like that's the question i always have like i've talked about that in past episodes like against gruel is like that's all you're thinking about it's like if you have aether gust like when is it most advantageous is it on the stack is it on the battlefield is it on your turn is it on their turn if i were to put a bow on on this little section why playing against gruel is interesting 
Gruel's natural state is aggression, which means that more often than not, you're blocking or playing defense. And it's commonly said in magic that math is for blockers. And I think that's really true in historic playing against Gruel. And what that means is you frequently have to be in the position where you're thinking several turns ahead because all Gruel is thinking about is which creature they're going to put down on a given turn, ideally on ahead of curve and how quickly can they turn creature sideways and chip away at your life total that it puts more pressure on you to actually start making those calculations about how you're going to manage your resources or your interaction against the deck that really wants to eat up as much interaction and removal spells as possible. I think a really important thing too is when you're playing against it is, is look at their mana. Like you look at if they have double red, how many creatures they're attacking with, try to keep them off those Embercleave turns. I know that's kind of like easy to ask and potentially hard to do, but a lot of the game is stopping Embercleave, right? And so like if you can if you can stop the board from building up, if you can uh, somehow keep them off of red mana, it's not really easy to do in a format like historic. But you can if you if you pay attention, you can be like, oh, okay, this is an opportunity where I don't think they I think they're just attacking because they want to attack and they want to they want to you know, maybe get one or two of my blockers out of the way. But if I double block in this fashion, I'm, I'm not going to you know lose to uh, the spell that they can't even cast right now or something like that. So it's really about like, how do you take away their board advantage? Because that's the one of the advantages that Gruel is trying to pre- pre- uh, present to you. And if you can try to claw your way back from that, whether that's through you know smart double blocks or generating one large creature that can just sort of take over the board, that's that's all the kind of places that you want to be. And I think the decks that you can just choose, like if you're saying like, okay, there's gruel everywhere. I don't know if that's actually the case or anything like that, but there's some natural way. there's some natural predators to gruel, like the auras decks that Dave has championed for a while. Uh, they prey on gruel, sort of like there's not a creature interaction. And Aura can get a creature or two onto the battlefield that's outclassing what Gruul's doing. Yeah, and the, and big, the big thing there gain. is that there's not a lot. Well, it's life gain, and also there's not backup creature interaction. So, like, if I have one card to protect my Spirit Dancer and you have Stomp, yeah. like, that's all you're going to have. Like, you, you only have so many slots for it, where other decks that are removal decks have a lot. So, it's it's easier to play around the removal in Gruul sure. as well. For sure. Like, the... And you can like you can get flying and like nothing in this deck's blocking flyers. Uh, like Gruul's win rate against Azorius and Orzov Orz is like twenty five percent according to Untapped. That's really bad. Like really really bad. That is an extremely polarized matchup in a format like Historic. I mean, I routinely have Gruul pilots scoop when I play like game one. If I play uh, the dog, they just <laughs> yeah, the they just over. quit, and I'm yeah. like, okay, like turn one dog. I mean, I wouldn't do that, but I mean, it's close enough. Yes, you would. The Shane I, I actually, know absolutely would. It's funny. Like I actually don't. I don't. I don't concede early on arena very much because I value my wins too much. Like I value mm-hmm. those pips on the ladder. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like if, sure. if it's if it's if it's off ladder, like yeah, sure. But if it's on ladder, then yeah. Uh, another deck that you can choose that I think has a good matchup against Gruel Agro is the new Selesnya midrange deck. Um, it's coming up and coming. It can outclass the creatures while also providing interaction, like Skyclave Apparition, Fairgrounds Warden. Uh, Gruel even has a hard time, you know, dealing with like a giant love struck beast or life gain and creature pumping of Great Henge, the card advantage of Collected Company on the other side. Um, 
I think it's a good deck. I think Selesian Range is not as fast as Gruul, but in a Gruul meta, that's a good meta choice. Okay. I have to ask, because this is what yeah. I always ask. Who is this deck for? Besides me. Is it just for Shane's? Well, clearly not. Uh, it was for a while. I, I, I was, you know, I think that people were sleeping on it for a while, but now it's it's come into the limelight. Um, like, I think it's easy. It's easy to pilot. It's got it's got good draws, right? Like, it's you, if anyone stumbles against you, you can run them over. You get, like, one of the best stupid pieces of equipment in the format of, for, like, you know, the entire history of Magic. I would say that this deck is for, basically, if you wanted to move into Historic and you play, like, Burn in Modern, I would recommend that you start with Gruul. I know that they're not really the same type of thing, but this is the the most aggressive thing you can be doing in the format. It has a little bit more complexity in some ways, but I think it's uh I think that's where I would start. This is just like the class aggressive deck of historic right now. Yeah, it plays some of the best creatures. It combines speed and durability. Uh you have various forms of card advantage, whether that's like Garrick's Harbinger or Collective Company if you want to play that, or Chandra 4. There's a lot of ways for you to stabilize and win mid to long games as well. One thing that I think you've said to me, Shane, that I think is astute is that although this deck is easy, quote unquote, and, and this is a position that I believe in, and I think we generally agree that it's a relatively easy deck to pilot. I think magic is relatively easy by and large, to be honest with you. Dude, you're not playing enough Storm. The, although this deck is relatively easy, there is room to grow and capitalize on expertise or as you put it, gain that last 5%. I mean, what I like about it is it's the card pool is large enough that it's very tweakable. And like, you know, it's the kind of deck where like when you play 150 matches of it, then you're like, then you have half hour long conversations with people in the Slack about like your two drop slot. You know what I mean? Where it's like, let's talk about various opportunities for really getting the last bits out of this, this deck on the ladder right now. And like, what makes sense? What's the highest floor? What what's what is my pre sideboarded cards because I want to have fifteen cards on my sideboard and I can't you know can't, I I have to have some of them in my main deck type thing and yeah that's what I like about that's I mean that's the best thing about being expert with any deck is getting the extra percentage points that make you feel like you're good at magic right yeah I think you know Dave compared it to burn and I think it's important to point out that you know burn kind of sort of has a historic version but it doesn't hold a candle to Gruul. Because in Gruul, your creatures still outburn the aggressive creatures that are in the mono-red decks. Yeah, this is not enough. The, the mana, the, the cost of the spells is too high, basically. Yeah. And when you have something like Gruul Spellbreaker or Questing Beast as your premier three and four drops, nothing mono-red is doing can actually really keep up or even imitate something with that speed and power. And I think that's why, at least right now in Historic, our burn aggro deck du jour is this gruel strategy. I think there's going to be an interesting change in the meta. And I think the, I think the Azorius deck will creep up to counteract gruel a little bit. And then I think that gives an opening for Sultai to make more of a comeback because I don't think the Azorius deck is quite as fast. I'm sorry. The, uh, Selesnia deck is quite as fast. And also I think that, uh, Azorius control will be improved in Historic with some of the Kaladesh cards, uh, I think. Kaldheim. Yeah, excuse me, Kaldheim. Yes, the K got me. But um, I think that that is also an opportunity for, if, let's say, Azorius gets even 
three to 5% back out of that, that might turn like a 48 into a 53. You know what I mean? I think, I think there's a lot of mashups that gruel is always in, but I think that it could get out of depending on some of the cards that the people are playing against you. Deck is good. Deck is fast. Some people think the deck's a blast. All right. That wraps up this week's show. We love to end our episodes with a rhyme now. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to our podcast, you can tweet us at the dive down or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Get in our Slack, get some stuff. We're doing a, some packaging this week. It's never too late to sign up for our Patreon. Shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring our show. You can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. Also, if you play Magic Arena, you can support the Dive Down without spending any money by using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software over at untapped.thedivedown.com. That's a redirect. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and gruel smash bang!